Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be finishing up Romans chapter 2, looking at verses 17 through 29. So grab your Bibles, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. As we continue our study of the book of Romans, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 2, verse 17. So you can turn there in your Bibles. By way of summary, in chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans, Paul is leading up to a grand declaration of the gospel message. That is, justification by grace through faith. The message that we have forgiveness for our sins by the grace of God through faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. Before this grand declaration of the gospel, Paul leads up to it by convincing us that everyone needs this salvation. Everyone needs forgiveness for their sins. Paul does this by first convincing us that the Gentile world is steeped in sin. That's what chapter 1 is all about. And then Paul turns to the Jews and convinces them that they too are steeped in sin and need the forgiveness offered through Christ. That's where we are here in chapter 2. In this section, Paul focuses his writing squarely on the subject of the Jews, and I guess you would say their arrogance and hypocrisy in religious matters. And though this passage is directly written to the Jews of Paul's time, I think we Christians can take a lesson from it. It's really a passage against any arrogance in religion, against presenting the face to the world that because of your religion, you're somehow better than others. Christ, though he had all of the qualifications as Son of God to present himself to the world with all arrogance and all self-righteousness, instead he presented himself with humility and grace. And so if Christ was not arrogant, then certainly we shouldn't be so. So we can think about that as we read this passage. Think of it as an instruction to be less arrogant and more humble towards others. To ever and always in our lives be a reflection of the grace of God. So let's read the first part of our passage today. We'll be reading verses 17 through 24 of Romans chapter 2. Here's what Paul says, quote, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge of truth, You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Unquote. Paul in these verses actually points out the advantages that the Jews had over others, and these were true advantages. 
but he shows that they took these advantages as an excuse for being arrogant over those around them, rather than using these advantages to bring others to a close relationship to God. This is a danger for us as those who have the truth. Arrogance and self-righteousness are natural outgrowths for us in our sin nature when we are convinced that we are better than others in some way. And make no mistake, what we have is a great thing. We have faith in the true and living God. We have a relationship with the true and living God through Christ. We have forgiveness for our sins and an assurance of salvation. We'll be with God in eternal glory. But we need to make sure that the possession of all these great things is not transformed into a contempt for others who don't have these things. We must make every effort not to project contempt, but to project a humble desire to bring everyone into the family of believers. The Jews, as Paul points out, also were given great things by God. First, they were, quote, the Jews, as Paul says in verse 17, now you, if you call yourself a Jew. Wrapped up in that term, the Jews, was that they were the chosen people of God. It was a matter of pride to them, and rightly so. The children of Israel were selected by God to be his people on the earth, to be entrusted with his law and his word, to be given instruction in the proper worship of God, to have revealed to them the true nature and personality of God. These were all great things, and the Jews were right to be proud of them. And so, yes, the Jews had the advantage of just being Jews. Second, they had the advantage of having the law of God, as Paul says in verse 17. Quote, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law. They alone in all the earth were the people to whom God chose to reveal his law. Reliance on that law was well and good, as long as their reliance included obedience. The problem is, the Jews relied on the mere possession of the law, while they strayed from obedience to the law. They thought that they were appointed a special place with God because they merely possessed the law, whether or not they actually obeyed it. This was a danger to them. And if this was a danger to them, then we as Christians have a far greater danger. We rely not on the law of God, but on the grace of God. And because God's grace is so expansive, we have the danger of falling into sin because we know that we'll be forgiven for it. This is a danger for us as Christians, taking advantage of God's grace, taking advantage of God's love for us. This is something we all must be careful of. So, the first advantage was that they were Jews, the chosen people of God. The second advantage was that they possessed the law of God. The third advantage was that they knew God, as Paul says, quote, if you rely on the law and boast in God. They knew God, they knew the only true and living God, they boasted in God, which can be a good thing. There is a good boasting in God and a bad boasting in God. Jeremiah describes the good boasting in God in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Actually, this is the Lord speaking here. Here's what 
uh, here's what he says, quote, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Unquote. That's the good boasting in God. To not boast in your own strength, or your own wisdom, or your own riches, but to boast first and foremost in your God, and how great God is, how He, quote, exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. That's the good boasting in God. Believe it or not, there's also a bad boasting in God. The bad boasting in God goes something like this. Uh, I know God and you don't, so I'm better than you. I'm more righteous than you, and you're basically scum. That's the bad boasting in God, to put it mildly. Note how the bad boasting in God focuses on yourself. I know God, so I'm better than you. Whereas in the good boasting of God, as the Lord himself points out, you specifically should not boast in yourself. God says directly, Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast in their strength, or the rich boast in their riches. The good boasting in God precludes and forbids boasting in oneself, even if the boasting has to do with knowing God, because that is, in effect, boasting in your own wisdom. I know God, aren't I wise? Na -na 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 -na. The fourth advantage from verse 18 is that the Jews, quote, know his will. They knew the will of God because they had been given the great gift of the word of God through the prophets and patriarchs. They alone, among all the cultures and peoples on earth, had been given this revelation of God. They alone had been spoken to directly by the true and living God. In this, God showed them great favor. The fifth advantage, continuing in verse 18, was that they, quote, approve of what is superior because they are instructed by the law. Because they had God's law, they were instructed in how to live a superior life, a life in accordance to the will and the ways of God. They knew what way of life was superior, that is, living in obedience to the law, versus what way of life was destructive, that is, living in disobedience to the law. Non-Jews, those without the revelation of God's law, had no objective standard of right and wrong, no objective standard of how to live a superior life. Finally, the sixth advantage that the Jews had was that they were given the wisdom to be teachers of others concerning God's will and God's ways. Paul says this in verses 19 and 20. The Jew could be, quote, a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because they had in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, as light for those in the dark, they had a greater responsibility. Those who are light necessarily provide an example to others. And so those who are light and yet stumble cause others to stumble. And this was the problem of the Jews, as Paul notes in verse 21 and following. The Jews' action did not match their teaching. Let's read verses 21 through 23. 
You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Unquote. With greater light comes greater responsibility, not only because if you know what is right, then you should act accordingly, but even more importantly, if you have the light, your life becomes an example for others. And so when you stumble, your actions will affect the actions of others. We, as Christians, are in the same boat as the Jews, because people look up to us for moral leadership. And so our lapses in moral leadership are magnified. In fact, the world revels in our failures. The world, it seems, loves when a Christian leader or pastor or preacher is caught in serious sin. The world loves to see Christians stumble and fall. Paul summarizes the worst result of those who are in the light and yet fail to live up to godly principles. And this should bring us sadness. Here's what he says in Romans 2, verse 24. Quote, As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Unquote. When we sin, it's not only our name that is sullied. God's name is blasphemed, as Paul puts it, quoting from Isaiah there. Albert Barnes, uh, the great scholar who wrote notes on so many books of the Bible, he describes the importance of our actions as those who are lights of the world. Here's what he says, quote, It matters little what a man's speculative opinions may be. His practice may do far more to disgrace religion than his profession does to honor it. Unquote. And then Charles Hodge, uh, the great systematic theologian, tells us how, since non-Christians don't read their Bibles, we as Christians effectively become their Bibles for them because they pay attention to how we live our lives. Here's what Charles Hodge wrote, quote, Christians should ever remember that they are the epistles of Jesus Christ, known and read of all men, that God is honored by their holy living, and that his name is blasphemed when they act wickedly. Food for Thought by Dr. Hodge. That is so well put. We are the epistles of Jesus Christ. Non-believers don't read the epistles of Paul uh, nor the Gospels. Rather, they read our lives to know what Christianity means. They read our actions to know what godly living is. They read our words to know what Christ said and taught. And so, to the extent that we live and act and speak holiness, to that extent, God is honored. But to the extent that we live and act and speak ungodliness, to that extent, God's name is blasphemed. And so, what a great responsibility that we have. It's just as Jesus told us in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. It's a great responsibility, isn't it? It is for us, and so it was for the Jews, as Paul put it, as a light for those in the dark. 
And so in the next section, Paul drives home the fact that true godliness has the foundation of an inner purity, which manifests itself through godly outward actions. And Paul especially emphasizes that the religious rituals of Judaism mean absolutely nothing if one's life doesn't live out the symbolism to which the ritual was pointing. Here's what Paul says in verses 25 through 27, quote, Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code in circumcision, are a lawbreaker." Unquote. Paul speaks here of the rite of circumcision, which was so important to the Jews. In fact, in one respect, it literally and physically distinguished the Jews from non-Jews. Many Jews of the time thought that the mere participation in the rite of circumcision not only distinguished themselves as the children of God, but also would spare them from any judgment from God. Paul informs them that circumcision does not convey such privileges. Rather, for the Jews, it is merely an outward sign of the covenant between God and them. Just as mere possession of the law by the Jews would not shield them from judgment, so also mere participation in the rite of circumcision would likewise not convey righteousness upon them. Or as Paul puts it in verse 25, quote, Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Then, in verse 26, Paul says a most shocking thing to the Jews, shocking even more than the previous verse. Here's what he says, quote, So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? To the Jew, the rite of circumcision conveyed upon them membership in this special club, so to speak, of being one of the chosen people of God. In the opinion of the Jews, there was no way, outside of being circumcised, that a person, a non-Jew, could ever be a child of God. To them, it was impossible. That was why, even in the early Christian church, there were many Jewish Christians, and these people drove Paul crazy, there were many Jewish Christians who demanded that, in order for one to be a Christian, they had to be circumcised. As I said, in the Jewish way of thinking, there was absolutely no way that a man could be a child of God without circumcision. And yet Paul here tells them in verse 26, So then, if, you, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The Jews' answer to that question would be no. No, they wouldn't. They couldn't. You know, they would say they actually need to be circumcised in order to be regarded as being circumcised, uh, in order to be regarded as a, a child of God. But Paul's rhetoric is leading them to a different answer, as he makes clear in verse 27. Here's what he says in verse 27. Quote, The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who 
even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. And this leads Paul to the summarizing point of all that he's saying in this section, and that is, the outward rituals of religion mean nothing if they're not accompanied by an inward purity, an inward godliness, a heart that ever seeks to obey God's way, to, to follow God's will, to accomplish God's purposes. Whatever you do on the outside means nothing if the inward purity does not exist. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. Quote, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. To gain the approval of God, one must have an inner purity. One's godliness must come from the heart. Circumcision was an outward rite in which a man, by sacrificing the flesh, consecrated himself to be a child of God, to have membership in this group called the people of God. The rite was meant to be accompanied also by an inner consecration, an inner dedication to moral holiness, an inner dedication to live out God's will. Without that inner dedication, the rite of circumcision became worthless, and the circumcision became uncircumcision, as the original Greek says in verse 25. And this isn't just a New Testament teaching. Here are some verses from the Old Testament that proclaim the same thing. Deuteronomy 10 verse 16 says, quote, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer, unquote. And Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 14 says, quote, Jerusalem, wash the evil from your heart and be saved, unquote. It's the same principle as when God said, Quote, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's from Hosea 6.6. 6. And it's also quoted by Jesus in Matthew 9.13. God desires an inward attitude of mercy and grace and obedience, not just the mere trappings of outward religious rituals. The religious rituals were given as symbols to guide the people to the same inward purity that the outward rites demanded. Unfortunately, these rituals wrongly became a substitute for the inward purity. Uh, you know, they said, oh, if I'm circumcised and I offer up an animal sacrifice once in a while, I can go on my way and live whatever life I want to live. And there are Christians who misuse uh, Christian rituals in the same way. There are some who say, oh, if I've been baptized and I go to church once in a while and I give money to the church, well, then I've done my duty. I can go on my merry way and live however I want. But no, God would rather you work on purifying your heart than to do any of the outward rituals. That's why God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In fact, Forget about doing any of these outward, quote-unquote, Christian activities if you're not willing to, as Paul puts it in verse 29, circumcise your heart. 
Purify yourself inwardly in order to give the outward actions and rituals real meaning. Here's how Paul puts it in verse 29. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. If you want praise from God, if you want to hear those words of commendation from God, well done, my good and faithful servant. You'll seek this inner purity, the inner godliness, the the godliness of intentions, the godliness of the inner sanctification that gives true meaning to our outward rituals. Let's meditate on this by asking and answering some questions. First question, what does it mean to have inner purity? What does it mean to be inwardly pure? What traits do we need to have in order to have this inner purity? Well, first let me tell you what it is not. It is not sinlessness. No one is sinless. Sinlessness is not required. We can still have an inner purity that pleases God, even though at times we displease God by stumbling in sin. Here are possibly a list of things that could go a long way toward, you know, creating this inward purity. A desire to commune with God, a humility before God, an appreciation of all that God has done for us, a desire to serve God, a desire to reach people for Christ, a love for others. Can you think of other traits that would make up an inner purity? Here's another question for meditation. How do we get this purity of heart? First and foremost, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we would do well uh, to, through prayer, humbly ask for this power from the Holy Spirit. A second way to get this purity of heart is by the study of the Word, in order that we may know better God's heart. A third way that we can get this purity of heart uh, is to keep watch on what enters our hearts. For instance, take care of what you, say, watch on TV, listen to, expose yourself uh, from online sources. Make every effort to let wholesome and edifying things into your hearts. Paul sums up this point in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, when he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's good advice by Paul. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling. All rights reserved. Until we meet again, 
Live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.